0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition.
1: Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi.
0: Ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major
1: Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major. Fantastic. It's the takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better.
2: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I am Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout. On many platforms, those of you who are earliest adopters, pl- podcast platforms around the country, thanks for being there all along. Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, more than 70 radio stations around the country and on CBSN. Great to have you with us. As all of you know, or you will soon come to know, this show is about two things each and every week. What are those two things? One, We are relentlessly curious. Two, we are steadfastly non ideological. We welcome points of view on all sides of the political spectrum. We take our guests seriously, but we never take ourselves too seriously. That is always the way I open the show, because that's what the show is about. And I thank you for catching the vibe. And as I've done throughout the pandemic, let me say this I'm working from home, as you can tell. And for those of you who are not, because your work requires you to be out there, whether you're driving a truck. Whether you're working in any kind of slaughterhouse, I don't use the dainty term meat processing facility. You're in a slaughterhouse, you know what you're doing. If you're a first responder, if you're a healthcare worker, if you are a teacher who's about to go back to school, we are trying to do our best to make this not worse for you. That's why those of us who are working from home and can work from home are doing that. And as I say each and every week, for those of you who are working because you're essential, we know it. We appreciate it. We thank you for that. Paul Begala is our special guest this week. He has a new book out. It's called You're Fired. Guess what it's about. We'll get to that in a second. Paul, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Major, thank you for having me. This will be fun.
2: He has a hat on. So do I. What's your hat about, (laughs) Paul?
1: Uh, it's about the most important thing in my life. Uh, no, it's not the tex- It's not uh, the politics uh, that I spend my career in. It's the Texas Longhorns. My greatest passion in life is University of Texas, where I went, my wife went, one of our sons went. It's, it's the greatest place on earth. Uh, don't you agree, Major, that it's the greatest <laughs> university in the world? By the way, in the book, here's the shameless plug. In yes. the book, every time I refer to my college, I call it the greatest university yes, in the world. Yes, you do. I was interviewed uh, recently by Al Franken, the former senator. Mm-hmm. You know, he went to Harvard. Yes. I don't, I don't know. Most Harvard people, you don't know them for more than three or four seconds before they mention uh, Tell you. They that. Mention yeah.
2: That. They, they, <laughs> they teach you at Harvard how to weave that in, in the very first moment.
1: <laughs> that's in the orientation. Yes. And now, what hat are you wearing, Mr. Garrett?
2: University of Missouri, my alma mater. And uh, for you and for me, it was a transformational place. It was the most, affor- mm-hmm. most important four years of my life, best decision I ever made to leave home in San Diego go to the middle west of our country, uh, to the best and first journalism school in our country yeah. to learn the things I've learned, and to see if I could hack it. And so far, I'm, I guess, barely doing that.
1: It is. It is really. A ter- I, I had the honor, actually, to, of teaching journalism for a while at the University of Texas, and Mizzou is the greatest journalism school in yeah. America. So I, 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 I never rank by college second to anything, but uh, you guys really do it right at Mizzou.
2: So let me ask you a couple of questions about your life before we get to the book. So I'm going to ask you not how many campaigns you've been involved in because involved can be kind of a nebulous term in politics because you can be involved, but not necessarily invested. And you can be a bag grabber in a campaign and be invested because you're trying to build your career. How many campaigns have you been emotionally, professionally invested in in your life? Actually,
1: honestly, all of them. Uh, the the mighty firm of Carvel and Begala, uh never really grew. You know, we started with the two of us, uh, helped elect a president, reelect a president, did, did campaigns all around the world. So any number of world leaders we helped elect. And you know what? After 35 years, we're still two people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we never, honestly, and we did fine professionally, but we never took a client that we couldn't go all in for. That uh, Really, it, it was part of Carvel's pitch. We would pitch clients. He would say, you know, you hire our brains, but we throw in the heart and soul for free. Uh, I, I admire, I have friends who are better business people. They can handle 5, 10, 20, 50 clients at a time. And I admire that. It's not me. It's, I, I, I'm wired to be more of a true believer. Now, I have to say, I'm out of that business and I kind of miss it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing I miss the most is the headquarters. Going in and hanging out with those. It's like a newsroom. Mm-hmm, you know, right. it's all these Absolutely. really smart, really idealistic, really young people. But, you know, i just, I've aged out. I'm just too old.
2: How many campaigns did you lose?
1: Oh, more than my share. Uh, and I think about them much, much more uh, because you, you learn more from them. But uh, that was my next it's, question. It's painful when you have to walk in to that hotel room and tell the person that their life stream is over. You know, uh, here's one. Uh, Harris Wofford was United States senator. I was his campaign manager. I helped get him elected, which was great. Then he was defeated for re-election by Rick Santorum, who's you know, now my colleague at CNN. And when it was over, I had to walk in that room. And I said, Harris, it's over. We've lost. You need to call Congressman Santorum. Here's the phone. And boy, does that show character. And God bless him. Harris uh, picked it up. Most gracious call you could imagine. Rick will tell you that. Um, this is what we do in America. But it's awfully, awfully painful to know that you have come up short and that you have failed. As a, as a professional, they don't pay me to lose. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, um, it's crushing. Uh, it's really difficult, but it, the, the rewards of winning are so great.
2: And from loss, you learn what in politics?
1: Every, in fact, I worry that I don't learn enough from the victories because I don't obsess on them. You know, victory is sort of self-justifying. Uh, 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 oh, everything I did must've been right because I won. But when you lose a race, you go over everything. And uh, that's what happened in 2016. I was involved in the super PAC that was helping Hillary Clinton. I had been involved in the super PAC, same super PAC, and helped President Obama. So we helped President Obama. He got reelected. He'd have won without me, believe me. But we did a good job. I'm real proud of the work I did for President Obama. With Hillary, I, I took my eye off the ball. Not, not, I mean, I love her. She's family to me. I love her. It's not that I took my eye off winning. I took my eye off voters. When, when we were doing the, the negative campaign against Romney, that was our job as the super PAC. We never attacked his character. Because fundamentally, Mitt Romney is a good person, a person of very good character, extremely high character, actually. I'd be really pleased if he were my neighbor. I couldn't afford to live in his zip code. But I would, I would really, seriously, I would love if he was my neighbor. But he had these business deals that were politically toxic. Mm-hmm. And so we made ads about those business deals, showing people who had lost their jobs and claiming Romney. And they were very, very effective. Flash forward four years later, I'm doing the same thing for Hillary against Trump, who also, he had business deals. His best business deal was worse than Romney's worst. You know, it was an utterly failed. He, he, he was bankrupt running a casino. But I took my eyes off that and all of our attack ads were about his character. The, the misogynistic things he said about women, I'm going to grab them by the privates. I'll clean it up. Uh, I, I, the things he said about John McCain and POWs. The things he said about Serge Kovaleski, a journalist who has a physical disability, mocking him. So our ads were about that. And the problem with that, they're all true. I defend them all. But they weren't about your life. They are about Trump's. And all our ads about Romney were not about Romney's life. They're about your life. Here's his economic policy. Why it'd be bad for you. But with Trump... I fell into what I call in the book the Trump trap. His piggish personal behavior was so distracting to me and other strategists that we fixated on that instead of simply telling uh, a a retiree in Pennsylvania, uh, a farmer in Wisconsin, an office worker in Michigan, why their lives would be better with Hillary and worse with, with Donald.
2: Do you have any sense that when he saw those attacks on him, he thought that was okay?
1: Gosh, I don't. You have such, I mean, I read your book. You have such insights into him. I think he did because, uh, again, I'm out of my depth. I never even took freshman psych, but a lot of people think he's a bit self-absorbed <laughs> and they use the word narcissist. I don't know. I, I'm not qualified. I'm not going to diagnose, but he does seem, even for a politician, um, kind of like the tenor at the opera before the curtain goes up, just me, 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 me. It's all he talks about. So I think, uh, I think a narcissist likes to be the center of attention. So I suspect he did. Like it, um, and I should have I should have run ads about retirees in Pennsylvania and farmers in Wisconsin and office workers in Michigan, not about Trump's gutter level character flaws.
2: Shoulda, coulda, woulda. That is one of the stories of 2016. Paul Begala is our yeah. special guest. Uh, stay tuned for segment two of the Takeout. Coming up in just a moment.
1: This episode of The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCityStakes.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. For those of you on CBSN, this is the Missouri Tigers. That other hat (laughs) is the Texas Longhorns. Uh, I guarantee you I'm not going to bury the lead. Yes, I know Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris. We're going to get to that. Hold on. But we're going to get to a couple of other things of equal importance. Paul Begala should and will the Big 12 play football this fall.
1: these young people has to be paramount. It has to be. And I know most of many of them want to play. I don't blame them. Uh, I have a son actually plays rugby uh, and and, at college level. And uh, I don't want him playing rugby. I mean, rugby is all in a scrum. They're all breathing on each other. Football is the same way for the linemen. Uh, And so I would, as a dad, I really worry about their health. I know these guys want to play and gosh, nobody wants football more than I do. But I, I just I think that uh, many of these colleges uh, are and I think our conference is going to come to the conclusion. It's just not safe. And then the uh, all the everybody else, all the trainers, all the coaches and the assistants and the videographers and then and then the fans. You know, there's just so many. And, the, comu- and the communities
2: who build much of their fall economic livelihood around this process.
1: I know that's what I hate. I, I just the the restaurants and bars and 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 the folks selling t-shirts outside the stadium and the whole thing. It's just heartbreaking. Uh, but I just worry. I'm glad I don't have to make the call. Um, and, and I, I I'm going to respect whatever decision, of course they make, but I just, I just don't think it's safe. It feels like and again, the, my son, I, my kid's not going to be playing.
2: Right. Right. It feels like a big 12 rugby. and the sec, the conference that the great university of Missouri is now a member of formerly of the big eight right. originally then the big 12. Um, it feels like they're hanging on and trying to yeah. see if there's some way. But you've got to look at the decision from the Big Ten and the Pac-12 as the canary in the coal mine.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I wish Mizzou was still in the Big 12. I think Big 12 football <laughs> is great and it's fun. SEC not bad. Uh,
2: but <laughs> I just, It's harder. I'll tell know, you that. <laughs> it, oh, yeah.
1: Everybody says, oh, it's just the money. And money is not nothing. I right. know – Money drives college football. Uh, it it is, it, it, it but it is also, as we said, all the ancillary uh, folks who build their whole income around that in the in the communities. But they're going to follow the lead. That's my prediction. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they just it's it's the same reason we're coming up on the conventions. Right. I've been to every Democratic convention since 1984. I've been to every Republican convention since I don't know 2000. Uh, once I became a commentator for CNN, I, uh, so I I can't count how many I've been to. You're probably the same. I love them, but you can't have them. And I and it, you know nobody loves speaking at a rally more than President Trump. Nobody loves shaking hands and slapping backs more than than Joe Biden. But those guys aren't going to be able to do that either because of the threat to the community if you do it.
2: And do you think that's going to be true all the way to November third?
1: I do. I do. And it's going to be weird for those of us who are covering it and commenting on it. I'm out of the business right. of being a political consultant. But so, imagine
2: you were in it. What kind of what, I, either advice or worries would you have about the structure of a race that exists not in the face-to-face world, but in the virtual world?
1: Right. right. Particularly if I'm a, as a Democrat, if I'm working for Joe, Joe is really good in the room. He makes this really deep connection. He is a people person, the Irish guy from Scranton. You know, that's his thing. Uh, and I think he's actually quite a fine orator, but he doesn't like light it up at a rally the way Trump does. Trump is, is I think, again, you wrote the book, I think better as a performer at a distance than he is in a small intimate room. So I guess as a strategist, I would try to put Joe in safe, socially distanced setting so where he can still actually be in a room. Uh, and i be, almost begin and end it all with coronavirus, with nurses, physicians' assistants, docs, but also mom and pop businesses like we talked about, who who are struggling and so many of them going under because of this economic crash that has accompanied the the corona pandemic. So I I would put him in small rooms, uh, well, big rooms with small with small groups, and let him listen and talk and share stories. And that is something he's much better than Trump at. I, I don't think Mr. Trump has. Uh, Joe's gift of empathy. And so if you put Trump, if I'm working for Trump, honestly, take my partisan hat off. If I'm working for Trump, I want him in a big rally. I don't really want him in a small room where he's talking to a mom and pop pizza place that's going out of business because football season got canceled.
2: Mm-hmm. So let's get to Kamala Harris. Uh, you've been in the business. You have worked uh, around those who have made this decision. You have advised people who have made this decision. And then you've watched the punditocracy Take on decisions like this. And I was struck yesterday, Paul, how rapidly it went from this person and this moment, which by any definition is bright with history. Bright with history. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was the conventional wisdom choice. (laughs) What? But Did we skip over that whole process of, wait a minute, this, this has never happened before in the history of the country. Whether you like or dislike Kamala Harris, it is singularly a moment to at least pause for, and over, it seems to me.
1: For 230 years, we have, 231, we have had 48 vice presidents. Every single one, 48 of them were white, 48 of them were male. Um, so uh, as a white male, as you seem to be, I I, I could tell, (laughs) on on right, we've had a hell of a run. No doubt. And I'm sure it's because white men are just absolutely brilliant, superior in every way.
2: But maybe not. Probably not. Maybe. Not where I'm I'm concerned. Not where I'm concerned. (laughs) Oh, same here.
1: It's preposterous. And so what Joe has done is very historic and it's long overdue. My own modest proposal is we go 230 years with nothing but women. Uh, So by the year 2251, maybe we will go back to guys. Yeah. uh, But I'd be completely happy with that. So it is historic. And people like me, you know, white and privileged and all that, I can't imagine being the child of immigrants. One, uh, you know, mom from India, dad from Jamaica, struggling to make it in this country uh, as a woman of color on top of that. And so she's had to really overcome headwinds. And then as she's on the cusp of being named to the vice presidential ticket for her party after a lifetime of service in that party, one of the former party chairmen says, oh, she rubs people the wrong way. She's too ambitious. Mm -hmm. Just shut up, Ed Rendell. Mm -hmm. Shut up. Yep, That was so sexist. And God bless Joe for not listening to that nonsense. Because by the way, I've been around a lot of politicians and frankly, a lot of vice presidents. Every one of them is ambitious. They ought to be. It's a job requirement.
2: And it is a standard that no man would ever be held to. No man who would be considered as a running mate would be dinged for having got in someone's face and bloodied them up a little bit in a debate.
1: And this speaks to character. Uh, I I think President Trump likes Mike Pence because Pence is very subservient. Now, I I like Mike, our vice president, I don't want to be disrespectful, I've he used to, I used to interview him. He'd come on my show. and he, I think he's a good person. I just think he's got different political ideas for me. I can't say that about Trump, frankly. I don't think he's a very good person. But, but Pence has been very subservient. Trump seems to push out anybody who challenges him. Here's Kamala. She didn't just challenge her. She got right in his face and drew blood. And I watched the tape again. You can see in Biden's eye a little bit of, okay, okay, she's got game. All right. Ah, All right. You know, there was an admiration. So the fact that he is reaching out to someone who just hit him with a haymaker in a debate shows a a great strength of character. This I do know, having, I started every day for a couple of years in the Oval Office with the President of the United States. The most important thing is that that president have people in there who can say to him, no, you're wrong. And that's what Biden did for Obama, I believe. I know that's what Gore did for Clinton. I was there. And that's what Kamala is going to have to do if she becomes vice president. I think she will. She proved it in the campaign.
2: So I want to set you up with this thought because we got to go to break here for our radio audience. But you know there are people around Joe Biden who have been involved in his campaigns, and he's been involved in campaigns for a very long time. He was elected at age 30, one of only six senators in that category, and one of, I think, 18 to actually be sworn in before he turned 31, a little bit of trivia. And that inner circle, some were uncomfortable with Kamala hitting him so hard. And I Mm -hmm. want you to think about and answer my question on the other side of this break, what does it say about the campaign and Biden's approach to it, that those people spoke up, but ultimately were overruled. Paul Begala is our special guest. I'm Major Garrett, segment three of the Takeout in just a second.
1: cbs news this is the takeout
2: with major garrett welcome back i am major garrett paul begala is our special guest if you follow politics at all and because you're listening and watching i'm pretty much certain you do you know who paul begala is but in case you don't author of the book you're fired it's about president trump it's a campaign manifesto of of a kind commentator on CNN, and a very successful political strategist slash consultant, not just for presidents of the United States, but U.S. senators, and as he mentioned earlier, candidates around the globe. So, Paul, you know that there is this, I don't want to call it a protective cocoon, but there are those to Joe, around Joe who have been with him for many, many years, decades in some cases, and they're sensitive and they're protective of him, and they did not, they were rankled by Kamala, and their voices were heard and overridden. What does that tell you about where the campaign is? And Biden's relative sense of this moment and what he has to do to win.
1: It, it, it says, I think, a lot of good things. You, you, you want a red team. You want someone in your campaign, and in your White House, consistently saying, wait, what if you're wrong or I don't like this? Let's reassess. I think that's fine. I, I happen to think they were wrong and that Joe was right to overrule them. Uh, I, I thought that, that picking someone who had like, gotten right up at him, that shows a security. Uh, a a sense of self-confidence that frankly, we're lacking now. I mean, look, Donald Trump's a very weak person. He only wants sycophants around him. It shows strength when you want someone around you who disagrees. I I saw this when when Bill Clinton picked Al Gore. I have to say, I was for Harris Wofford. Harris had the most important qualification to be vice president. He was my client. But (laughs) also, in a conventional sense, if you're just some jerk like me, Clinton was younger then. Clinton was young. Harris was older. Clinton was from the South. Harris was from the Northeast. Clinton was Baptist. Harris was Catholic. Clinton was domestic-focused. Harris started the Peace Corps, lived in Africa. So they were – Harris was a senator. Clinton was a governor. Perfect match. And he interviewed Harris, and he liked him just fine. He interviewed Al Gore, who he did not have a relationship with. They had been circling each other warily for the leadership of the New Democratic Sunbelt movement. They were not buddies in
2: 1998. And Gore was trying to divide himself as the person to lead that in 1988. Absolutely. And
1: they did the interview, and uh, Clinton was alone with him. And after the interview, Clinton said, that's who I'm going to pick. I said, can you imagine this, Major? I was like, uh, Governor, Gore hasn't even endorsed you. <laughs> Literally, he looked up at me, and he's like, "Polly, I believe if I pick him, he will. <laughs> It's like, okay, what does he bring? He's the same age. He's the same region. He's the same ideology. He's the same gender. He's the same, we're everything. And he said, you know, I might die. And I thought, wow. So so you have to make a governing choice, long way to say. Mm -hmm. The conventional political analysis from conventional idiots like me is always going to be wrong. And Biden knows this better than anyone because he played that vital role for President Obama. And the beauty of it is the governing choice also does almost the impossible. She excites the base of my party and she reassures those suburban college-educated Republicans who are coming over. You know, the Reagan Democrats were a big thing. We're going to see an election, I think, with a lot of Biden Republicans. And Kamala is reassuring to them. And I believe that. And I think you'll see that as we put her on the trail or the virtual trail, but also as we get polling data. So if you can both excite the base and reassure those swing voters. That's something pretty magical, and I believe she has that ability.
2: do you believe this would have happened had not the George Floyd moment transfixed mm-hmm. this country and the world?
1: I just don't know. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think that the, the, that stripping away our my our willful blindness in the white community mm-hmm. uh, to the, the structural racism has been shocking, bracing, and absolutely essential. So maybe not. It has caused uh, a reassessment. It's not like, obviously, I think most people are people of goodwill. Most Republicans are. Most Democrats are. And I think they don't want to live in a racist country. And I think what has changed it is, is you know, we all have these phones now. And so I can see what I have not lived. You know, I get pulled over, Major. They call me sir. Mm-hmm. Okay? And they apologize. Oh, I'm sorry to bother you, sir. You have a nice day and just drive more carefully, right? That's how I get. So I love cops because that's how they treat me, right? So when I see George Floyd murdered in broad daylight by the guys who are supposed to be protecting us from the murderers, uh, it's shocking. And it does cause reassessment. It may be. It's a long way of saying uh, uh, this, this reawakening has been vitally important. Uh, I, I, one of the great things about this is that the vast majority of white people, now support Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. I saw a poll that said 58% of police officers support Black Lives Matter. So this is a good country, and we want to be better. And I think Kamala is the right person, having been a prosecutor and also an African-American, who can uh, help us work through this.
2: Let me just get your quick assessment of what happened in the six hours after this announcement was made by the Biden campaign. I got... Emails from the RNC and the Trump campaign initially saying that Kamala Harris was the culmination of the radical left takeover of the Biden ticket. And then within two hours after that, I got emails from the campaign and the RNC saying, look how upset liberals are that Kamala's on the ticket. Which is it?
1: How how can you not have a theory of the case for the front running candidate for vice president? Okay, I'll give the Democrats a pass for being caught flat footed with Sarah Palin. people didn't see her coming and people forget you covered it i Mm -hmm. was there she was a rocket ship she was a phenom she blasted john mccain right past barack obama on september 11th they were winning
2: nobody got into obama's head and the head of that campaign the way she did with that acceptance speech they were wobbly for about two and a half three days they really were i felt that i was
1: think i I think more than that i i actually i mean i'm really wobbly oh yeah i wound up i i sat down and met with him on September 11th, I remember, uh, with with Senator Obama. and so, But I give them a pass because Obama people had no idea Mm -hmm. Governor Palin was coming. Everybody knew Kamala was in the top tier, Mm -hmm. and they still don't know. And I watched Trump's presser. It was really interesting. You can see, it's like, do I attack her for being a woman, for being black, for being a child of immigrants? Do I go with the racism, the sexism, the xenophobia? Like the bigot's roulette just spinning in his head, and he do not know where to land. Uh, I, I think it's, as a Democrat, I think it's hilarious. As a strategist, though, honestly, I'm offended. Like, how do you not know where you want to go against the leading candidate for vice president who then the, the nominee winds up picking? It's mm. malpractice. Trump, Seriously, Trump ought to sue his staff or fire his staff because that's just not how you play this game.
2: Is there something that is generationally Unresolved about Kamala. I have talked to some Democratic strategists who say, look, the backbone of the Biden victory in South Carolina was not just African-American voters. It was African-American women of a certain generation. But the younger generation is maybe not as old and carries these issues of what she was as a prosecutor, maybe a little closer to their heart and are maybe a little more distant from this. Do you think there is a generational I don't want to call it a schism. That's probably too big a word. It's too fancy a word anyway. But that's real between generations within this community. And I would only observe, isn't it a great thing in America where we can actually be starting to get sophisticated about variations within communities that we used to think of monolithically?
1: That's a great point. I think there was until the announcement. There's an alchemy that happens when someone is lifted up like that. Uh, I, I, we saw this with, with, I did, with Biden. We saw it with Dick Cheney who was to me sort of this old washed up has been. And, and, you know, he did a lot of good for Bush in that campaign uh, as a reassurance. I actually also saw this when uh, in his first year as president, Barack Obama chose uh, Sonia Sotomayor for the Supreme Court. One of the Obama people called me, being from Texas, he said, do you think Mexicanos, Mexican Americans, Tejanos as we call them back mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. will rally to support this Puerto Rican American woman from New York? Will they see her as simpatica or will they just say, why is this New Yorker going on the court? Right. And it turned out uh, the the Mexican-American community loved her. They saw her as uh, as she once described herself as a wise Latina. And they loved her. All of the all of the rivalry or all of the, you know, we want a Mexican-American, not a Puerto Rican-American. All that disappeared uh, because people rallied in my party to uh, Justice Sotomayor. That's what's going to happen with Kamala. Those divisions are real. And they're important. But now it's family. Now she's the one. And I, I think uh, people are going to rally to her. I mean, it's the same thing. There's a generational divide with white folks, too. I mean, <laughs> I, I will have these arguments with my sons where, you know, I, I'm not going to reveal their, but they're all Democrats, but they're, I would probably say, more liberal than I am. Mm-hmm. And yet, once you pick someone, okay, let's say hypothetically, That some of my sons didn't vote for Biden at the primaries. They love him now.
2: Right. That's the voice of Paul Begala, our special guest. Segment four of The Takeout coming up on the other side of this break. What makes a life a good one?
1: Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
2: Paul Begala is our special guest. He has written a new book, one of many. It's called You're Fired. Yes, it's about the President of the United States. Um, So I've had this conversation, Paul, uh, and Democratic strategists who I talk to pause for a moment. Uh, I can possibly hear them gnashing their teeth a little bit. But when I ask them this question, they don't tell me I'm completely off base, which is this. Is Joe Biden one blank stare away from resetting this race?
1: No. No, and here's why. The greatest political strategist of all time was actually not my partner, James Carville or Carl Rover, Lee Atwater. Greatest political strategist ever was Henny Youngman, the old Bush Belt comic. Mm -hmm. His standard line was, how's your wife? He'd say, compared to what? Okay, a (laughs) presidential election or any election is a compared to what? So can Joe uh, make gaffes? Absolutely. That's like his trademark move. But compared to what? Joe Biden didn't tell anybody to drink bleach. You know, Joe Biden didn't go out and say that George Washington's troops secured all the airports in 1776. I mean, the the stuff that Trump says and does is just bonkers. So I, I, I think when you're working for Donald Trump, it is probably not a good strategy to attack the other guy's mental acuity. Man, woman, person, camera, TV. Like, come on. I, 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 his, his niece alleges that Trump paid someone to take his SAT. I think he paid someone to take his mental acuity test.
2: But you know they're going there. The first... Fine, let them. Okay.
1: Let them. They're going to go somewhere. They can't go to, to 160,000 dead from COVID. They can't go from 10 million jobs lost. They can't run on his record. But of all the things that Trump could argue, the notion that Donald Trump, who a a more just society would not have him in an Oval Office, they'd have him him in a rubber room, and he's going to attack somebody else's mental acuity?
2: It's crazy. What about the attack line, which you also know is coming because you've seen it, is that whether it's Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, the Democratic Party is moving inexorably and radically left and wants to bring... Not only socialist ideas, but socialism writ large to America. Yeah,
1: we just had a primary on that. And I am not a socialist. Uh, Bernie's a friend of mine, by the way. I worked on the Hill, and, and I, I, uh, when he came to the House, I became friends with him. And he was in the Senate. I, I was in, working in the White House, and he was an ally and a great guy. I like him a lot. I don't share his particular brand of politics, though. I'm not a socialist. And so we had a whole primary on that. Uh, certainly Senator Sanders, to a lesser extent Senator Warren, really picked up, and, and by the way, several others, Castro and Beto and several of them really staked out positions on the left. And the Democratic Party said this, we want reconciliation, not revolution. They explicitly turned away. Biden didn't just win against a really talented field. This is, I think, the best field that Democrats have ever put together. Joe didn't just win. He won 45 contests. He, you know, Barack Obama only won 33 when he first ran, he won 45 contests. The Democrats, we have 54 because we got to have American Samoa and Guam and Puerto Rico. So, so we get to 54. So he won 45 out of 54. Um, and 17,660,000 Democrats voted for him. That's more than everybody else got combined. The other 23 candidates combined didn't equal Joe's. So he is the dominant figure. And I think what people responded to was a call for reconciliation, not revolution. Uh, and and for progressive change certainly, but I they they you don't pick Joe Biden if you want your party to become socialist.
2: When you write in the book about not only the things that you missed in 2016, but the party missed, and many of us who are covering—I mean, I was covering the campaign every single day—and I missed, mm-hmm. which is this sense that as a candidate and as a president, Donald Trump speaks to a sort of inner core. Of his supporters that is intellectual, but it's also deeply psychological. Mm-hmm. Does that still exist? And if you are someone who is suggesting or crafting strategy to confront it, what do you do?
1: Yeah, I think it's very real. And I think it is something Democrats have to understand. Uh we're supposed to be the party of empathy, right? We're supposed to be the party that feels your pain. We're supposed to be the party of inclusion. Why not include some of these folks who turned last time? A great many of them voted for Barack Obama and then turned around and voted for Trump. Uh, and there's, there's some, some elites in my party dismiss all the Trump people as racist. That drives me insane. I have family and friends who voted for Donald Trump, okay? And they're not racist at all. It's the fallacy of composition. All racists are Trump supporters, but not all Trump supporters are racist. All, animal, all, all giraffes are animals, but not all animals are giraffes. Actually, very few are. And I think that's the better way. So Democrats need to understand where that's coming from. I think they've worked hard at that. I really do. I think Joe's empathy can speak to that. And it matters that you listen and respect instead of denigrating and attacking. I never won an argument in my life. I hosted two different political debate shows. I probably hosted way over a thousand debates participated in. I never won one by saying, shut up, racist. You know, but oftentimes I would listen. Maybe even, like, go out and have a beer with the other side later. And you learn, and that's what Joe brings to this. I'm serious, this empathy that he has, his ability to listen to Pete. And he's criticized because he had praised some of these racist senators he used to serve with. Well, he's, they, the racist senators still had to get things done. And he had to deliver for Delaware. And if that means getting some racist senator back in the 70s to vote for you, well, then you got to do it.
2: Because you have to find ways to get... 51 votes or 60 votes or whatever the right. requisite number is. And not every one of those voting people is going to share every one of your beliefs, perspectives, or values, but well, you got to get I their votes anyway.
1: I make this case sort of pleading to the Democrats. Democrats have to win in rural America. First off, they cannot write off rural America. It's, it's, it's a, the heart and soul of the country. Not that cities and suburbs aren't, but if we write them off, First of all, it's just morally wrong. It's politically stupid um, because the Senate is structured to allow small states to dominate. I don't like it. I think it's completely unfair. Uh, Wyoming has 600,000 people. California, your home state, mm-hmm. has 40 million. Okay, at this hour, <laughs> listening on Sirius XM Channel 124, POTUS. There are more than 600,000 people stuck in traffic on the 405, okay? Right. But the 405 doesn't get two senators. I think right. it's a completely nutty system. But you know what? James Madison won't return my emails. Nope. I've been bugging the hell out of him to change that. <laughs> so it means you have to win in places like West Virginia, where we have a Democrat. In in places like Kansas, actually. I, I uh, spoke by Zoom with Barbara Bollier. Uh, she's a physician and the Democratic candidate for Senate there. She's very impressive. Bill Clinton's economic plan was passed by one vote, and that vote was from a Democratic senator from Kansas by the name of Bob Kerry. Barack Obama's health care bill. Uh, I'm sorry, Nebraska. Nebraska, uh, Bob Kerry. Obama's health care bill also passed with the, sa- the last vote being a Democrat from Nebraska again, Ben, ben Nelson. Nelson. right? So Democrats have to win. First off, I, as I say, it's morally important. You know, if, if, you, if you like to eat, you should know something about agriculture right you should you should right. thank the people and i'm glad you mentioned folks in slaughterhouses and farmers out in the field there's no reason that democrats should write them off there's no reason by the way trump has sold them a bill of goods rural hospitals as i document in this book rural hospitals are under in crisis 77% of rural counties have a healthcare worker shortage 9% of rural counties have no physicians whatsoever and and he's been hell on farmers democrats ought to come in and say i feel your pain I care your cause.
2: That is Paul Begala. i been our special guest here at The Takeout. For those of you on our radio stations, we have to say goodbye to you. Be with us next week. But those of you at CBSN and on our podcast platform, stay tuned for The Takeout Outtake, Especial, out where this conversation will continue. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I'm Major Garrett. This is your takeout outtake especial. It's kind of the fun and games part of the program, although we've had plenty of fun already, so I'm really (laughs) not sure that these are going to be very distinguishable. One from the other, Paul Begala is our special guest. Paul has written a book, You're Fired. Uh, Yes, it's about the President of the United States, Uh, and if you know anything about politics, you know Paul Begala does not want to see him (laughs) reelected, underscored, italicized, all caps, I think, is a fair way to describe that. Paul, um, in my book, which you've been kind enough to mention, uh, Mr. Trump's Wild Right, uh, I take a quote that one of my colleagues at CBS, Dean Reynolds, found when he was doing a ser- series of stories right after the inauguration of President Trump with Trump supporters. And one of them told him something that has never left my mind, which is this. The reason I like Donald Trump is because he understands this country is coast-to-coast, not coast and coast. I think that is as succinct an assessment of the people whose values they thought were either being ignored or undervalued, reaching, reaching, knowing that there was an unpredictability to it, to the Trump campaign in 2015 and 2016.
1: Well, and what a con job that is. I mean, Donald Trump was born in Queens and lives in some gold-plated birdcage in Manhattan. He's got a home in Beverly Hills and nothing in between. He's one of the richest guys in America. He could have a place in farm country like me. He could go to uh, Little Rock and Hot Springs like Bill Clinton, even Chicago like Barack Obama. Trump views the whole rest of the country as just this dark space between Trump Tower and Beverly Hills. And yet and yet he conned those folks.
2: Yes, but Paul, that doesn't mean as as Bill Clinton taught you and others taught you in politics, guess mm-hmm. who gets to to decide what their values are and who represents them. Voters get to decide that. You don't get to decide that. And, absolutely. And, and these folks did. But absolutely. And they got conned.
1: Donald Trump has been a wrecking ball for the middle of this country. He's actually been great for Wall Street. He've been terrific. He'd been terrific for uh, uh, millionaires and billionaires and his fellow plutocrats. He'd been great for them. But if you're a working stiff in the middle of this country, if you're an office worker, if you're a farmer, he has been hell on wheels. He cut. This is a case that Democrats need to make, by the way. And I think Joe Biden is doing it. He did it in his Build Back Better speech. Donald Trump came in. Corporate profits were at a record high. That's good. I'm not a socialist. Corporate profits at a record high, what does he do? He cuts taxes for corporations by 2 trillion dollars. 2 trillion. That's more than twice what Obama spent to save the whole global economy. And he did it to bolster corporations when they were wealthier than they've ever been. Meanwhile, 48,000 people a year in the heartland of this country are dying of opioid abuse, about which he has done squat. Last year, the total drug addiction deaths were 71,000. About 48, 50,000 of them were opioids. He's done nothing. For them, farm bankruptcies are an all-time high. Uh, rural healthcare, hospital closings are, are rising. Um, there's a crisis in the middle of this country. People put their faith in him, and he screwed them. And I think Democrats should come in and make that case. Um, you're not going to win all of them, but but we we can we can do better, and
2: we have to. To a certain degree, there was an effort along those lines in 2018, and as you point out in the right. book, it worked. It worked in terms of turnout. It worked in terms of demographic shifts. It worked in terms of bringing younger voters into it. And you know this, I know this, but our audience may not. Midterm turnout is a very strong indicator of the next presidential election turnout. So what will you say? What do you say about the things learned from 2018?
1: Right. I've got a whole thank you for reading. I have a whole chapter on this. If I'm the goat of the book because I got 2016 wrong, the hero is Nancy Pelosi the much maligned uh, leader of the Democrats in the House, one of my political heroes, the best speaker of either party that I've seen in 35 years. Here's what she did. And yeah, blah, blah, we hate Trump, everybody hates Trump. She recruited uh, the most diverse class of candidates Democrats have ever had. More women, more people of color, more military, more national security, number one. Number two, she matched candidates to the district. She ran moderate candidates in moderate districts. Number three, she focused them all on healthcare. Now, she picked up 41 seats in the highest turnout we've had since women got the right to vote 100 years ago in a midterm. 41 seats, not one of them. I went and campaigned for a whole lot of them at, at Speaker Pelosi's request. None of them ever ran an ad attacking Trump at all. None of them called for his impeachment. None of them talked about Russia, Mueller collusion. They all talked about healthcare. They talked about your life. And Nancy got that. And she is, uh, I think, I really do. I think she's one of the great political strategists in American history. Democrats need to listen to, watch what she did and listen to her. There is a reason that she gained 41 seats in every one of them in Trump country. Uh, It's the most impressive midterm election I've ever seen.
2: What is your level of concern about the ability for this election to be carried out in a pandemic? Some states and jurisdictions are moving More aggressively than they have previously because of the necessity brought by the pandemic to mail in voting. There will be other different availabilities of polling stations, fewer, more concentrated, some voting centers. And you've already heard the president doing what, as you point out in the book, he did in 2015 and 2016. Undermine the whole idea that an election can be carried out.
1: The, the notion, first off, he even undermined the legitimacy of his own election. <laughs> he said there was fraud. And I've never seen a sore winner before claim fraud when he won. Um, but this is, I think, an existential threat to our democracy. If you don't believe in the right to vote, you can't really call yourself an American. And uh, Mr. Trump is undermining that. Uh, vote by mail is perfectly safe. It's perfectly honest. It's perfectly ethical. Uh, actually, your colleague at CBS, Caitlin Huey Burns, did the uh, math on this. She did a couple great pieces. I'm serious. I don't even know her personally. I'm flacking for it because there's such great reporting. So she dug into it. Colorado votes 100% by mail. Yep. She went to the Brandon Center for Justice, an independent think tank in, in, at NYU. They calculated the rate of fraud in Colorado is 0.0000001%. One ten millionth of a percent. Uh, That's pretty close to perfect. So I want folks to vote, obviously. I, I, I honestly would rather people go vote for Donald Trump than not vote at all. I really love democracy. I've spent my whole life promoting democracy. But it can be dangerous now with this virus. So vote by mail, vote early. Some states have drop boxes. I wish every state had this, and I hope the secretaries of state will think about this. If you don't want to overburden the Postal Service, which we might. Why not take your absentee ballot and go to the firehouse, go to the police station, go to the government center, and just drop it off in a secure box? A lot of states do this. Ohio, they're trying to expand it. Michigan, Pennsylvania, a lot of places do it. That's a terrific solution. The the last thing, if I could lobby for, this is totally nonpartisan. Your audience skews younger, Major. Our poll workers, 50% of them are over age 60. And Almost a third of them are over age 75. They're just the best people in every community, and they are at terrible risk for COVID. So younger folks should, if they can, if it's safe, if they mask up and maybe put a face shield on and gloves, whatever. If younger people are willing to set aside their partisan hat for a few hours and sit as a nonpartisan poll worker, the lines will be shorter if we have more workers. No, we not. can protect our seniors who generally do this, uh, the, the wonderful work of democracy. Uh, that is a nonpartisan thing. Republican mm-hmm. or Democrat, set your cap down for a minute yep. and then go in and work as a poll worker. It would be a wonderful patriotic act.
2: So uh, we have three threshold questions, Paul Begala, that every single guest has been asked and answered. Our audience loves the answers. So in whatever order you prefer, most influential book in your life, all-time favorite movie or one of your all-time favorite movies – you're going to indulge yourself musically. What artist or genre are you going to pick?
1: Okay, I'll pick the last one first. That's easy. Country music. Uh, you know, I'm from Texas. New? and And uh, well, I'm much more outlaw country. My, my sons will listen. Some listen to hip hop, but some listen to the modern. But if you look on the back of the book, the most treasured blurb on this book, Major, is not from President Clinton. It's not from Speaker Pelosi. It's not from James Carville. It's from Willie Nelson. There you go. I sent Willie and his wife, Annie, the chapter on rural America, and they loved it. And uh, that meant a lot to me because they have been right. fighting for family farmers for decades. So that so first, first country. Okay. Book, my favorite book is certainly Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove. Mm-hmm. My, my little consulting firm is called Hat Creek Enterprises. Right. That's their cattle company. And that's a book about life and about friendship. Yep. And, and I, I am blessed to have some friends like that. And they mean the, the, the world to me. Now, wait, what was the third question?
2: So uh, that's your book. You've talked about the music. Favorite movie
1: godfather i know it's everybody's but if i, if I could step aside from that godfather right. is the best movie ever made um you know the big lebowski is just consistently hilarious awesome, awesome. Uh, it, it, you know bridges and goodman uh, uh, steve buscemi it yeah. is a fantastic it's so weird but it's so weird. you know, you can but watch it again and again and see different things
2: talk we talked about divides earlier uh there is a um gender divide on that movie uh that is a guy flick Guys get that and love that. My wife's like, yeah, I sort of get it, but I would never watch it again. I've met more than one woman who thinks the exact same thing. That's, That's kind so of a niche guy flick. That's um, so interesting. Best political movie, the best movie about politics that you've ever seen. You know,
1: I just watched it again. We have three generations under our roof because Nana's living with us to avoid COVID at the, at the nursing home. So I've got him from age 20 to age 84 mm-hmm. in my home right now. Hard to find movies that everybody can watch. <laughs> I got out my favorite political movie and got it held up. Dave. Yep. Have you ever see Dave? Yes. Dave yes. Dave was written and directed by one of my best friends, Gary Ross. Mm-hmm. Gary is like our generation's Frank Capra. Yep. Dave is about just an ordinary guy who becomes president. And you watch that movie and it makes you believe in your country again. It makes you believe in people again. It's a, it's a hilarious movie and it's so affirming. I, I just love that movie. I highly recommend Dave.
2: And it gets some of the nuances right. And it has some yeah. inside jokes that if yeah. you're sophisticated, you've been around the game a little bit, you get even though not everyone will. Yeah. Very some good. Great
1: shots of your colleagues in the press room. <laughs> a young Ron Brownstein sitting in there <laughs> quizzing <laughs> Kevin Klein as president. Dave.
2: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Paul, it's been a pleasure. Uh, the book, again, You're Fired. It's about this campaign. It's about the president of the United States. And it's about what? Paul Bagala would like the country to do if you hadn't already figured that out. Paul, it's been a pleasure. We'll see you down the road.
1: Major, thanks so much. See you on the virtual trail. Yes, indeed. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of
0: CBS
2: Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey a story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.